and greetings and welcome to The Dividing Line. My name is James White. We are coming to you live from uh, somewhere in the very uh, sadly blue state of Colorado. place that I saw a sign alongside the road that says that all, um, all fireworks are illegal in this city. Didn't really make much difference last night, it seemed to me, but we'll see about this evening. Uh, it, it, it can't possibly be as bad as it is at home. Um, when we had more than one uh, animal, we only have one little kitty left, but um, boy, uh, July 4th and uh, New Year's Eve, and this year, like every night from Christmas to New Year's Eve, uh, was, was pretty ugly, it was pretty bad. Uh, but uh, anyways, if you are out and about, uh, if you are doing your thing, we certainly understand that today. I just did not want to wait to address some very, very important topics and I, I do have to start off, I suppose. Um, and, and if you're looking to just have a grand old day and you're, you're, you're dressed up like uh, Captain America or Uncle Sam or uh, whatever it is, you may want to skip the first part of the program and listen to it later. But um, I just, I have to be honest. Um, I, I think probably, I, I think most Christians having lived through yet another month of depravity, I mentioned that on Twitter today and some homosexual, uh, I'm not sure why in the world they are trying to find posts like this, but uh, talked about my month of bigotry. So, you know, you're a bigot if you don't uh, buy into their shoving their sexuality in your face. Um, These folks have absolutely no respect for language. But anyway, uh, after a, a month of depravity, it's very hard only four days later to sing God Bless America and um, do the fireworks. Uh, look, I, I understand. I They're beautiful, and I'm, I'm a historian. I, I look back at, at what we did, for example, in, in World War II and in World War I, and, but those were a long time ago. World War II... Um, you know, that generation has pretty much passed away now, and so much has changed. There was no Pride Month during World War II. <laughs> um, there, there was no Pride Month on September 13th, 2001, when I sat in studio. Um, I'm pretty sure that was in Rich's garage in 2001. Um sat at my desk and honestly said to the studio audience, after one of the most amazing events in our history, the attacks of 9-11, which history has also made us think through a lot of issues regarding that, but we had all just experienced something amazing. Um, I I remember the night of 9-11. My house is under the... Uh, landing pattern to Sky Harbor International Airport when the wind is going a certain direction, anyway. And the only planes in the air were military jets uh, flying over the city every once in a while. And we were all sort of in shock. And we did a program two days after the attacks. And I said then, and we didn't have a Pride Month in 2001. 
Um, I said then that the only blessing that we could seriously ask the Lord for, for our nation, was the blessing of a soul-shattering, heartfelt repentance toward God. And there was a brief period of time where we, we did seem to lay aside our differences a little bit. And there was, you know, for a few months, um, a togetherness in the nation that we have not had since then. And I don't know that we would have again, even if there was another event like that, as I am certain there will be, and probably on a much greater scale. Um, but things have only gotten worse since 2001. You've We've had a Burgerfell. There were no uh, drag queen story hours. There was no obvious push toward uh, pedophilia and polyamory and, um, you know, Barack Obama still thought that marriage is between a man and a woman in 2001. Um, and so much, much has changed and it has not changed for the better in our, in our culture. And so it's just honestly very hard for me to, um, um, uh, feel patriotic about a traitorous nation. We have betrayed those that gave their lives for our, our country. We have betrayed the Constitution. We betrayed the, the, the founders. We now vilify them as horrible, terrible men, white, cisgendered bigots. And so um, July 4th just isn't a day of celebration for me. Um, it should be a day of serious prayer uh, requesting that God would, um, in some way, shape, or form, uh, bring revival uh, to our land and and to our people. But also a recognition that there were fundamental and foundational cracks from the beginning. Um, I forgot to link to it, and I, I hope I will not remember after this program, I can assure you, because I have so much to cover. But I was listening to um, the second part of the response. I'm catching up on Apologia Radio. I I can't always keep up with it. I try, but there's there's just so much that I need to try to get to. It's actually a little bit easier while traveling if I just use the resources that are available to me. And um, a couple of months ago, well, maybe a month and a half ago, um, uh, Jeff and Luke and Zach had responded to um, the men from G3 on the whole Christian nationalism thing. And they did so very, very respectfully. Uh, Jeff and Josh have worked together in Georgia on the abortion stuff. And uh, they had done an initial program, which I do believe I mentioned. I know I retweeted it. I was in Georgetown at the Times. So that would have been May of this year, the last last uh, trip that we did. And then they did a follow-up program that I had not heard. And so I, I got to listen to that, really found it extremely helpful. And one of the things that came up was uh, Jeff Durbin responded to a question that was asked, I think, by Scott Annual. Um, it might have been Josh, actually, now I think about it. 
what would you change about the Constitution? And uh, I really found uh, Jeff's very sober uh, and insightful response really helpful. So I will try to remember. I, I doubt that I will succeed, but I will try to remember to um, link to that as it is relevant to what we're, what we're talking about right now. But uh, so I'm, I'm not one of those people. I, I unfortunately have had to grow up a lot as an adult in my recognition of the fact that my nation has done a lot of things that are destructive and have been destructive to peoples around the world. However, in the same breath, I have to say our continued existence has been a bulwark against much worse evil um, in the sense of totalitarianism and communism. Um, it is astonishing to, to watch as we fly pride flags from our embassies around the world and, and in essence advertise to the world. The world knows that's a sign of weakness. The world knows that's unnatural. The world knows that it's, a, it's sexual perversity. And yet we are exporting it and advertising in the process our own weakness as a culture and a nation. Um, we see this Admiral uh, Richard Levine um, out there doing his thing. And then there was some, I saw some tweet uh, about um, some other guy who's decided he's a gal and and so now in the military, it's it's not just don't ask, don't tell. It's parade it in front of everybody and shove it in their faces. That's that's where we are from from going from don't ask, don't tell to uh, uh, this type of stuff. It is it's been an astonishingly quick uh, movement. I can assure you of of that. So anyway, um, yeah, I think today is a good day of repentance. Um, repentance for the nation would be what we need to be praying for um, and um, and giving thanks to God that we survived another month-long celebration of depravity. I don't know about you, but I, I got the feeling, I really did get the feeling that a lot of the pagans, the non-Christians, who just don't buy into all this foolishness, they know the difference between a man and a woman, um, they, they look to me like they're sort of getting a little sick of the whole thing, getting a little tired of it. Um, I, I think we may be hitting the point where, where a lot of people are just like, look, enough already. This is, this is ridiculous. And uh, we'll see. We'll see. Um, that, would be, that would be wonderful and useful. So the, what I wanted to get to today, uh, and I've spent a lot of time, a lot of time prepping uh, for this program. I have a keynote presentation I've put together. I've got an audio note-taker presentation I've put together. Um, the smarter part of my brain says you'll never get through all of this uh, in this period of uh, time, but I want to try uh, to to do so. I, I think it would be helpful to do so. The main thing that I had already said we were going to do is continue our examination of and refutation of Unitarianism, exposure of it for what it is, a sub-Christian, sub-biblical um, replacement 
for biblical Christianity uh, always leads to uh, liberalism and decay over time. Just history has shown without a divine savior, you don't you don't end up with with a divine religion by any stretch of the imagination. And so that's what we will be doing. Uh, that will be the last topic. Uh, but yesterday morning, I was getting ready to leave um, to uh, to do a bike ride actually uh, at very high altitude, and. Um, I stumbled across a mention on Twitter. Someone had written to me and had said, uh, was really, he said, I, I listened to the last episode of Mortification of Spin from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Uh, and he said it was really hard to listen to. And he said it was pretty obvious they were taking a lot of shots at you. And I've listened to Mortification of Spin. I've been on Mortification of Spin. I think I've been on it more than once. Uh, but that was many years ago. And things have changed. And of course, uh, Carl Truman is the, uh, and Todd Pruitt are the primary hosts. They used to have Amy Bird, but that didn't turn out well. <laughs> um, and she's sort of gone her own way. And to be honest with you, you know, my daughter had identified Amy's uh, trajectory long before the men on the program recognized Amy's trajectory. Let's put it that way. Anyway, uh, uh, I hadn't heard of it. This first that I had heard of anything. And so I was like, um, what did they say? What was the topic? So I fired up my podcast app, which I'm going to be using it more in the future. It was way out of date. And, uh, fired it up and tracked down the last episode and not to much of my surprise at all, the guest was Matthew Barrett and the topic was his new book on the Reformation as Renewal. And so I'm like, okay, well, you know, that, that might be the case. Um, back in, I believe May, I had, um, uh, on one of the Credo podcasts, uh, Carl Truman had made reference to a popular Baptist um, and something about Philippians chapter 2. And so, as I mentioned on the last program, I wrote to the only address that I had for Carl. Didn't get a response back. It was a Gmail address, and most of us keep our Gmail addresses, but I didn't get a response back. So this time I, I went ahead and downloaded the podcast and listened to it while I was driving out to my ride. And then I, I asked that some other folks in one of our groups, well, our only group really, um, listen to it as well. And tell me, do you think they're talking about me here? Because uh, I just wanted some other, other ears to be listening and um, the, the majority response was, yeah, it sounds like they're, they're making reference to you. So I have written again uh, to Dr. Truman. And this time I went to the Grove City website and got his school email address. It's what's currently listed. And it says that he will not return until July 6th. So, okay. Um, I'll let you know if I hear anything back. If I don't hear anything in a week or so, I'll write again. 
And um, because I think that if you're going to make reference to people and say that they are misleading people and that they're in error on this, that, or the other thing, that you should have the temerity and simply the integrity to name names. Um, it's a whole lot easier to just throw people into a big bucket. And that's what's happening in this this uh, Mortification of Spin episode, is you've, you've got a big old bucket. And... Every, and this is this is what um, Barrett did in his Trinity book as well. Um, is you just you throw everybody into the other side, and so you you end up with with uh, Bruce Ware um, in the same pile with William Lane Craig. Well, there there are wider differences between some of the Thomists. Um, that are pushing this stuff on us today than there are between a lot of the people that they put into this one pile. And so it's not useful, it's not helpful, it's not fair. Um, but people are getting away with it a whole lot. Um, what's more is, especially since uh, Dr. Truman keeps mentioning Philippians chapter 2, if he's referring to me, and I, like I said, haven't heard back yet, I truly hope he's not. I don't know of anybody else. Um, there's made any comments, but I'd like to know, okay, show me your exegesis of Philippians chapter 2. Show me the church's exegesis of Philippians chapter 2. And when was this done? Who did it? Um, and where have I violated something? Because I know um, everything that Carl and I did was after I wrote my book on the Trinity. So my views of Philippians chapter 2 but I just get the feeling most of these folks would say, hey, none of that stuff back then matters. Um, we were dumb back then. You were dumb back then. We've gotten smart. You're still dumb. Uh, it, it just really seems to be where things are going, which seems very, very odd to me as well. But again, we'll find out. I hope, I really, my sincere hope is that these comments aren't about me. But we're going to listen to some of them, and you can sort of figure things out. This will allow us an opportunity to do some church history. And so today we're going to be doing church history, and then we're going to do Unitarianism, and we're going to walk through a sophistic argument against the deity of Christ put out by Dale Tuggy, and we're going to demonstrate just how vacuous it really is, and um, go from there. Um may also uh, pick up one other Unitarian thread. Uh, we'll see. Uh, obviously, the chances of getting through all that are relatively small, <laughs> but, um, but we, will, we will see. So let's get into it. Let me uh, play uh, segments from Mortification of Spin. I think this was June 21st, which was the last episode. So it's not like they do it daily or a couple times a week or anything like that. Uh, I believe the date was uh, June 21st. So again, Matthew Barrett, um, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, is the guest with Todd Pruitt and um, Dr. Truman. So let's um, let's get into it and see what there is to hear. Uh, you know, some will lament the Reformation for schism. Others celebrate the Reformation uh, for, you know, schism. 
uh, as if the Reformation is an abandonment of tradition. Uh, you know, it, it got past those dark ages for a reason. And, and so for the first time, the Reformation has recovered uh, that, that which uh, was corrupted, um, even, even by the, perhaps the church fathers themselves. Okay, so I actually missed the first quote. I, I'll play it here in a second because that was the second one. But it is vitally important for us to, for, for all Christians, to think through what we understand the Reformation to have been. And I can demonstrate beyond question that most of the major non-controversial assertions being made by both Dr. Truman and Dr. Barrett are not controversial and not new to them, and they weren't 20 years before they started, before 2016. Dr. Truman has said that's when he really became appreciative of Thomas, and and uh, Dr. Barrett wrote his Sola Scriptura book in 2016, and I don't, I do not believe for a second that he would write that book in the same way again. So let's just say 2016. Uh, 20 years before that. I taught through church history. Well, I've been teaching since 1990, church history, but I did a recorded version of that at the Phoenix Reformed Baptist Church. It was originally done in real audio. That dates it. Anything recorded in real audio is part of the ancient church. Um, and I know that um, Razor's Kiss from our old chat channel had actually downloaded all that stuff in real audio and converted it to MP3. And I think it's still out there someplace. There's over 50 lessons uh, in that very old recording. And it was sound quality, not good. Uh, but I know that's out there. And then I did church history from about 2016, 2017 till sometime in 2018. Again at PRBC, and that's still online at Sermon Audio. And a number of people have downloaded all that and collected it together, and and stuff like that. In both of those, so one was in the '90s, one was much more recent. In both of those teachings of church history, and of course, I could just simply call upon my students of church history down through the years to testify to the truthfulness of this. Um, most of what's being said is non-controversial. Um, remember a few weeks ago, I think one of the first things that I recorded in this studio on my own, surprised Rich to no end, was when I responded to Candace Owens and the debate between her husband and Ali Bestucki on Roman Catholicism. Of course, she converted. That was sort of obvious at the time that that's what she, what she was going to do. But, but remember, at the beginning, I played her and I played the question that her husband had asked of her that she couldn't answer, which was, do you really think Martin Luther was the first Christian after the disciples? And I pointed out, that's just absurd. It, it is such a straw man misrepresentation of what we believe. But there are people who believe that. Now, I, they, they, they can't ever have read anything that... Luther wrote, they couldn't have read Calvin. Most Protestants ever have. 
Most Protestants are not Protestants of conviction. They are Protestants of tradition and taste. The vast majority of people in evangelical churches do not know what the issues of the Reformation were at all. Totally unaware. And so it's just not even controversial to say that the Reformers rejected the idea that they were coming up with something new. They were rejecting the accretion of non-apostolic, non-biblical tradition. And so when, when people say, well, uh, the Reformation was renewal. It, it, it wasn't creation of something new. Well, if what you mean by renewal is a renewal of apostolic preaching, then yes. But it's beyond question that someone like Calvin, though very familiar with the early church fathers, did not view any of them as an inspired uh, container of tradition passed on from the disciples, for example. And so Calvin is willing to criticize anybody. And it's the standard that he uses that is most, most important to us. What standard does he use in analyzing anyone? And, of course, the response is Scripture. And that's what the issue is all about. The issue really here is not, no one is seriously, no one is, is in, in who has read Calvin and has read Luther and Zwingli and is at least mildly familiar with second, third, fourth generation Reformed writers that do recognize um, that Reformed orthodoxy did not necessarily continue the same uh, trajectory as Calvin, for example, but that in every movement you have a um, solidification of positions, um, a period of definition that takes place after the initial reformed movement gets it gets going. That's happened many times. Most denominations experience things like that, and certainly the Reformation as a whole did as well. But again, the the reality is that when Calvin and Sadoletto cross swords, Calvin does argue we are we are teaching and preaching what the apostles taught. And the way he proves that is primarily and foundationally from Scripture and secondarily by the demonstration that their interpretation of Scripture is not unique, but that there were those in the apostolic period or even later I don't think, for example, I could be wrong about this, haven't checked this, but I've got a good probability of being right. I don't think Calvin ever had read Fulgentius. I don't think Fulgentius's writings were yet available. But 
if he had had access to Fulgentius, he would have been quoting him all the time as yet another example of someone in the history of the church holding the same views um, that the reformers are promoting. Also recognizing that many of the men, including Augustine, that they would cite in defense of the Reformation, the other side could cite in defense of Roman Catholicism on other topics. And so they recognize that um, the sources in history will not be 100%. They're not claiming that everyone in the early church looked exactly like them on every subject and every issue. These are basics that I've been teaching for a long, long time. Unfortunately, it's being presented as if this is some new um, thing that no one in the 20th century understood. And of course, again, it's real easy to throw everybody into, into one pile, the ignorant people who've never read a word of Calvin and those who've read all of Calvin and Luther and all sorts of other things in the process. So uh, we are forced to think these things through. I think it's vitally important that we do so, that all of us do so. I, I really do think this is something that you know, a lot of folks will say, well, no, it doesn't really have anything to do with my life. It, it will, and it does, and it's influencing the dominations, the churches you give to, everything else. Let me go back and catch the first quote that I had scrolled past. I apologize for that. This is the first thing that I had uh, that I had marked. Protestantism today has been quite influenced in countless ways by modernism, postmodernism. Uh, you look at evangelicalism today, and uh, in so many ways, uh, theologically speaking, it is not just diverse to put it nicely, but um, sometimes diverse in the worst sense of the word, because there is no uh, agreement even on primary matters of the faith. Well, um, yes, there is a tremendous amount of unbelief in modern-day Protestantism, just as there is a tremendous amount of diversity and unbelief within Roman Catholicism. Uh, there's not quite as much variation within uh, Orthodoxy, but... My, my criticism of orthodoxy all along has been that it's, it's stuck in time. Um, it is stuck in, in a two-century period of time and can't, cannot respond to modern issues because it has so hyper-elevated the tradition of a particular period in church history that it's, it's fossilized. Uh, it can't move anywhere. And um, I think there are some Eastern Orthodox folks that recognize the problem that exists there. But anyway, um, but yes, there's, there's diversity of opinion amongst people. Uh, but that is not solved by access to a self-proclaimed tradition. Because Rome has a self-proclaimed tradition. And still has Pope Francis and Boston College and uh, Father Martin and all the rest of this kind of stuff. So the, the answer for evangelicalism 
Uh, evangelicalism will always be enriched by knowing more about its own history. But that's not the foundation. That's not the, the fundamental way of solving anything. Um, the fundamental foundation for solving something is called a return to the highest view of Scripture and the daily application of those scriptural standards to our own lives uh, and to the life and worship of the church as well. But you still see this across the, the different corners of the Reformation. They are all saying something similar. We too are Catholic. And by that, they don't mean Catholic with a capital C. They mean Catholic with a lowercase c, as in we too are part of the, the universal church. In their minds, that was critical, not only for resurrecting their own reputation and credibility against these accusations from Rome, but also, I do want to add this, also for distinguishing themselves from the radicals of the 16th century who, ironically, look a lot more like some of those characters I just mentioned. Yeah. Um, some of the characters that I just mentioned, this is Matthew Barrett that is speaking. Um, again, one of the um, tactics of this particular movement right now is to try to tie anyone who questions the Thomistic Renaissance, um, throw them all into the Anabaptist Munster group. And, and by the way, that, that's a highly effective methodology. The, the events at Munster, for example, were why Calvin never gave any Anabaptist, even an Anabaptist that was a world away from Jan of Leiden, um, any, never even listen to what they had to say. There, there, there could be no dialogue, there could be no discussion. Um, once Munster took place, that was it. It was over from that point on. And that's a huge impact. And so it's very effective then to try to paint people into these radicalized groups. Um, that's also behind the incredibly absurd, disrespectful, dishonest, and childish utilization of the term neo-Sicinian uh, that has been bandied around over the past year as well. Same type of thing. This isn't serious argumentation. This is throw them into a disgraced group, and there you are. But the element of truth, I always find an element of truth stuck in anything, the element of truth in what he's saying is, yes, the reformers want to stay as far away as possible um, from Munster, the Anabaptists. Uh, that's why it was a joint Catholic-Lutheran army that eventually broke through the walls of Munster and ended that rebellion. That was one way in which both Protestants and Catholics could say, not this ever again, which is why those three cages are still hanging on the uh, cathedral in Munster. Uh, that's that's their way of saying, no, this this we can never allow this to happen, and it, it should never happen again. And so, and so you would actually say that the Reformers thought that there were Christians before the 16th century, right? <laughs> yes, you know, it, it sounds so silly. I, I know this, but um, sometimes we're given the impression that Martin Luther showed up and... Uh, he took a, a, a bunch of pagans and right. he walked in as the first Christian. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and suddenly, um, 
uh, the gospel that had had never been uh, you know seen or heard of since the apostles made its first appearance. Yeah. Um, but that's of course M- Martin Luther would have uh, cringed at, right. at hearing that type of narrative. Um, and of course he would have. Um, and of course, once again, we're talking here about people who are astonishingly ignorant of church history. They're the only ones that could say that something. And there are people like that. I mean, let's be honest. That is pretty much the perspective you'd get from Dave Hunt in a lot of his writings years ago. And that's what um, Candace was saying. Uh, you know, Martin Luther, the first Christian. And again, it's it's astonishing ignorance. But it's not... It can't be taken seriously because you you recognize that anyone who would take things that way has never read church history. They've never read Calvin. They've read Luther. They they don't they know they don't know what they're talking about. But that is a large portion of the religious population, whether Catholic or Protestant. Um, but it obviously has nothing to do with those of us who have serious questions about this new Thomistic revival uh, that is taking place. Uh, to, to try to, again, create that connection is truly unworthy of anybody. Yeah, I was teaching a class this morning, actually. I do a Christology class at uh, Grove, uh, and we were looking at canotic Christology from the 19th century, uh, Tomasius, Ebrard, uh, Guess, or people like that. And one of the things that was striking to the students is that uh, – Canonic Christology, which is a clear break with the classical Christology you find in the Reformation, uh, is very close to some of the Christological formulations you find in popular evangelical writers today. Now, what needs to be done here is that Dr. Truman, who in decades past uh, was known for straight shooting and naming names, he needs to name names. Um, he needs to give specific examples. Because, again, like I said, back in May, he referred to a popular Baptist presenter um, and has made references to Socinianism and uh, kenosis and things like this. Needs to get specific. Um, it sounds like he's making reference to me. I hope not because it would be a dishonest reference. Anyone knows that? My exegesis of Philippians chapter 2 is in my book, um, which he recommended uh, when we did uh, uh, speaking together in years past. Because I wrote that in the 90s. And so, if he, you know, I would like to know, who are these modern writers and what is it about their Christology that sounds canonic? And what do you mean by canonic? What? How are you defining that? How do you in, how do you exegete Philippians chapter two? Uh, these are just necessary uh, things because if I am the person being referenced there, then I will challenge Dr. Truman uh, to demonstrate from my published works uh, what he's talking about, and I'll challenge him to debate too. I'd be happy to debate him. He's a brilliant man, but on this subject, he's simply wrong if he's making reference to me. 
Maybe he's referring to someone completely different. I hope so. I hope so. Uh, I'd like to know who, what, what is this? What are these people saying about Christ? And what language are they using? Is it, you know, we, we know that all sorts of people, everybody has to use language of veiling, laying aside, not in the sense of divesting, but there's the glory that Jesus had as he sat upon the throne, Isaiah 6.1. He did not possess in manifestation during the incarnation. That's a given. No one can argue this. Jesus did not walk through the streets of Jerusalem glowing with Shekinah glory. There is one period of time on the Mount of Transfiguration when that was changed. Briefly. For a purpose. For a reason. So everybody believes that there is some kind of veiling that takes place. So the Son can do what the Son needs to do as the Messiah. So what's the issue? What's the point? And if there is some, and he's going to make reference later to, you know, the church's interpretation of Litmus too. I want to know when the church did this. Because I can, I can point you to interpretations of almost any biblical passage by some of the greatest leaders, Augustine, Athanasius, Cyril, Basil, the Gregories, that Carl Truman will disagree with, has to disagree with. So there has to be a standard. And that standard needs to be applied regularly to everybody and fairly in the process too. Um, so let's let's not do the, we're just going to throw vague accusations out that make us look good and everybody else look bad. Uh, let's actually um, name names, give sources. Uh, you know, like I'm playing you all right now. Do the same thing. Do the same thing. One of the important things I think in your book, uh, Matthew, is you draw attention to the uh, the important uh, dogmatic and structural continuities that exist between uh, the 16th, 17th century theology, which of course is when the great confessions that many of us are confessional evangelicals or confessional Protestants look to, the Westminster Standards, the three forms of unity, when many of these are formulated, really uh, a lot of the the, the key meaty theology in those documents is drawn uh, without much if any modification from the middle ages and the patristic era and so it's i wouldn't say it's entertaining because it's more annoying than entertaining uh, but it is interesting to see uh, a number of people waving the banner of the reformation today who uh, might even have been burned at the stake for some of the things they're saying. <laughs> Would certainly not have been held in very high regard by the kind of people who uh, took Servetus down, for example, yeah. in Geneva. So uh, I think your book's very helpful from that perspective. Okay, uh, every Reformed Baptist would have been in danger of minimal, minimally um, exile, if not being burned at the stake. So that's that's real easy. That's real easy to do. Um, but again, it's very vague. It's not specific. And no one is arguing that there are not consistencies from the medieval period. No one's saying that it was just it was it was just this radical reformation. To quote a well-known study of that subject that I actually happen to have with me right here, 
Um, that's not what's being argued. Uh, so what is the issue? What, 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 why even bring up you know, people that are waving the banner of Reformation? So is that what every Presbyterian says about every Baptist? That wasn't where he, where he was 15 years ago. Is that where he is now? Is, is he with those? Because I've met Presbyterians that are still in the mindset of when Presbyterians were drowning Baptists. Um, Baptists have a long martyrology at the hand of Reformed people. So is that where he is now? I can't see how. But then why, then why raise these issues? Uh, why, why bring this up? Be specific. Be specific about what's being said. Um, there is a, a backstory to all this, and it's going to come out when Todd Pruitt speaks. He's going to point this out, that there's the issue of becoming Roman Catholics. That's going to come toward the end of the comments we're going to listen to here. And it will be important to think those, those things through, uh, because I can point you to lots of former reform folks Dr. Truman himself was on, you know, we've played portions of webcast he was on about two years ago now. And both men who were interviewing him were former Reformed men. One now a Roman Catholic, one Orthodox. That's where Dr. Truman says it's really troubling to have to deal with the reality that, uh, to come to the conclusion that the men from whom you learned the most about justification were wrong on the doctrine of God. I've played the statement. I could track it down. I probably still have it here. It'd take a while to find it, but I played the statement. No, actually not. I think it's in the same program that I've got here. I bet you I could pull it up fairly quickly. Anyway, um, that the reality of that movement and the reasons for that movement is something I know a lot about. I'm pretty certain that I have spoken with more converts I have been asked to speak with more people who were about to convert than everybody on this program combined and put together over the decades. Because of what I do. Because of the debates we've done. I know I've engaged a whole lot more Roman Catholics than they have. So, again, the, 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 the generalities do not help to actually uh, promote any kind of meaningful... A dialogue between us all. Uh, Luther says to Karlstad at one point after this long debate over uh, Karlstad, he's so frustrated the Reformation is not moving fast enough. He wants images destroyed, and 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 Luther says, "Well, this is turning into a new type of legalism, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. You know, well, Luther says to him at one point, "You know, Karlstad, you you swallowed the Holy Spirit feathers and all." Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's quite the insult because essentially what Luther, I mean, if he pushes it further, he's essentially saying to him, you, you're standing um, on your own two feet uh, by yourself uh, as if no one has come before you, uh, as if you alone have the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah. And so Luther learns, I think, quite early uh, as soon as Karlstad goes in that direction, because it's a radical direction, yeah. uh, it radicalizes itself until no one's left. It ends up being a party of one. Again, um, in 2017, before even Dr. Barrett started going the directions that now define him, 
um, I stood in numerous of the cities that marked Luther's life in Germany and lectured on this very issue. Uh, we talked about Karlstadt. I, I meant, I, when I preached <laughs> this, I'll have to try to remember to, to link to this. But when I preached in the castle church in Wittenberg from Luther's pulpit with Luther buried right down there, Melanchthon buried right over there. When I preached in that church, that sermon is on YouTube. And I mentioned Karlstadt and I mentioned what he did uh, in regards to the Christmas Eve, New Year's stuff and giving uh, the the supper in both kinds to the people and they came rushing forward and I was talking about events that happened in that room itself and so again the development of Luther's theology I have an entire lecture on the two Luthers that I delivered in Washington D.C. on Reformation Day in 2017 it's on YouTube uh, I mean I think you know, very clearly when the Zwickau prophets came into town, Luther initially was not nearly as negative toward them as he would have been 15 years later. I see 1525 as the dividing line in Luther's life. That's where the Peasants' Revolt changes any of the um, liberal directions that Luther had played with, including toward the Jews. Anyway, the point is, this is, again, nothing new. Um, it, 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 it sounds, I think, to, or it's, it's meant to sound to many people like we are correcting these errors. We've been speaking about these things all along, and the errors are not from people who actually know church history or have taught church history for decades, uh, but from those who ignore church history. And my concern, of course, is that many people get the idea that the more you know church history, then you're going to agree with this synthesis on tradition that I see as being very dangerous. And there's there's no reason to do that. There's no reason to go that direction. Um, many of us have been fully aware of these things for a long, long time. And um, we have been warning about these things. So I continue on. I'm, I may get through this in a fairly timely manner, shockingly. Uh, it, it's, it's a bit ironic, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, the radicals who radicalize uh, then disagree, eventually disagree with each other and have to excommunicate one another. And so at, at some point, the, the, the circle gets smaller and smaller. In that sense, I would say it's a lost cause. So he had been asked, does he think that it's a lost cause? To talk to these people who, again, have not been identified, which is, again, reprehensible from my perspective. Um, it should not be done in that fashion. Uh, but there's truth to the fact that the Anabaptists would divide and divide and divide. Um, this is the argument that Rome uses today. The problem is that Roman Catholics are not united. Um, there is just as wide an expression of beliefs between conservative, uh, tridentine Roman Catholics and a professor at Boston College. 
massively wide uh, worldview differences and theology differences and everything else. And so having a tradition, it's being suggested it's, it's having a tradition that keeps this from happening, but it doesn't keep it from happening. Um, though, again, that has been the Roman Catholic argument uh, all along, that that is how you keep division from happening. And that would apply uh, to, to some folks today as well. Um, we could put it this way. They uh, radicalize sola scriptura into solo scriptura. Mm -hmm. Okay. Pretty much any time you hear this group, so anyone associated with Credo, using this statement, you can pretty much just move on because um, this was... I remember in the 1990s, uh, probably about 96, 97, I remember when uh, I, I think a writer for Ligonier used the solo scriptura thing. And it was responded to immediately by pretty much all of us who were actually engaged in doing Roman Catholic evangelization, which... You know, I just sitting here thinking, do any of these guys evangelize Roman Catholics? Or have they reached a level of detente? You know, when you're constantly saying, oh, this Roman Catholic, right, he's great, this guy, all oh, these, they're the best at this, and they're the best at that. Um, so you're getting together with these scholars, and you're talking to them about the gospel, right? You're, talk you're asking them, are you the blessed man? A Romans 4.8. I wonder when the last time any of these guys asked a Roman Catholic that question that's very troubling to me. Very, very troubling to me. But anyway, um, no one is seriously doing the solo scriptura thing who has any knowledge of church history, any idea what solo scriptura actually means, has ever read uh, Yves Congar's works on, work on, on tradition, um, any of that kind of stuff. Again, what you do is you take the um, illiterate, uh, people who are just going on what they heard at church someplace, they don't know anything about church history, things like that, and you create a pile and then you throw everybody into it. And so it's guilt by association. It's unworthy of Christians. It shouldn't be done. Um, but that's what marks this Thomistic resourcement revival group in their polemics is they'll, they'll block you. They won't quote you. They won't interact with you, but they'll misrepresent you. They'll caricature you in their rather wide um, social media publishing uh, context. And again, that's just that's just not how that's not how Christians should do things. Uh, as if there are no authorities whatsoever, or as if um, uh, you know, you mentioned Carl, even uh, you know, doctrine as a whole, as if. Uh, we only pay attention to, say, soteriology mm -hmm. and ecclesiology, and then uh, we apply a certain hermeneutic to Scripture that then can't make sense of, of metaphysics that's so important for, say, the doctrine of God or Christology, as, as you were teaching on today, Carl. Um, okay, now think about that for a second, what was just said. It almost sounds like what Matthew Barrett was saying is that if... That we're applying that we have one set of hermeneutics for soteriology, justification by faith. Can we name just 
throw it out there and name it. Justification by faith. How you have peace with God. Rome's doctrine on that does not bring you peace. So you have one set of hermeneutics for that, but you have a different set of hermeneutics for the doctrine of God. So are you saying that Rome has the right hermeneutics for that and the wrong hermeneutics for the other? How do you prove that? What's going to be your, what's going to be your source? What's going to be your foundation, your authority? Because you see, when you say that Rome's hermeneutics for God are right but wrong for soteriology, you're setting anybody up to go, well, but Rome says her hermeneutics the nature of God is this, and comes from this source of authority, and therefore, if you're saying they're right about that, then they have to be right about a secondary issue that's down the line from the primary issue. And then you have former students of Matthew Barrett being received in the Roman Catholic Church only a few weeks ago at Easter, right? He's well aware of that. He's well aware of that happened. Um, don't mention it. I would really love to know if he met with this individual or tried to reach out to this individual. And if he did, what'd he say? Because I'd like to know what he would say. Because I don't believe that Matthew Barrett today could say what the Matthew Barrett of 2016 said in his book on scriptural sufficiency. I just don't think he could. There's been there's been too much of a of a shift and a change over that time period. I, I think a lot of this is still quite relevant today. Um, so that I, I would just say to listeners, um, you probably will take some wisdom to discern. Okay, is this person a lost cause, or is this person c- can they be corrected to actually look at the sources themselves and yeah. see? Oh, yeah, whether it's Luther or Calvin or, or Bullinger or Cranmer uh, or Jewell and, and so many others, they saw themselves as Catholic with uh, with a small C because they did not think of themselves as innovator innovators they did they thought of themselves as biblical but not biblicists they saw themselves as reformers but that reform itself hinged upon and depended upon um uh the, both the church fathers and and the medieval classics before them i think you see this okay now notice something and and i certainly noticed this throughout this section what does it mean to be biblical and not biblicist there's obviously a definition of biblicism back there that is not being enunciated and that's again what we see over and over again from this group is we're going to come up with our own definitions and we're not going to talk to you about it Uh, we're going to say you don't read the sources like we do we read Mueller you don't we're smarter than you and so just get in line and believe what we have to say Uh, the problem is that's just not true Uh, we do read the sources and what's amazing to me in this entire conversation is there was no emphasis upon the fact that the fundamental driving force, especially in Calvin, but in all of the reformers, in regards to the reforming impulse, was not medieval scholasticism. It was not the early church fathers. It was scripture. That is not a part of their emphasis. It is not a part of their emphasis, and that is frightening to me. And this is one of the things that concerns me tremendously. They subjugate the fathers to a scriptural standard. They subjugate the schoolmen to a scriptural standard. They subjugate medieval theology to a scriptural standard. And that's not even questionable, but you're listening to what they're saying right here, and that's not what you're hearing. 
you're not hearing that from them. Um, and that just, I, that was all the way through this. And it was, it was a sad thing to be listening to. Uh, only a few more sections here, and then we'll, we'll be moving on. It's very much an Anabaptist kind of narrative in many ways. I mean, we did have these, uh, as you pointed to with uh, Karlstadt, we did have these characters in the Reformation who repudiated uh, tradition as a whole, even as a concept. Uh, And they were disastrous uh, in the end. Theologically, within a generation, there is nothing of orthodoxy uh, left uh, among Mm -hmm. these groups. It always strikes me as odd. I remember being in a faculty discussion in another place where I worked many years ago, uh, and uh, a colleague raising the question, has anybody ever wrestled with these texts in the Old Testament that talk about God (laughs) changing his mind? Okay, now I'm going to continue that quotation, but... I I don't know that I could not hide my shock and dismay if I were to be in a staff meeting. If I were, I cannot imagine being in a staff meeting at GBTS and having a fellow staff member, a fellow professor, a fellow teacher go... Has anyone ever uh, dealt with these uh, texts about God changing his mind? I'm just like, um, you don't know what Nacham means? If you've, if you've done any kind of ministry in the church, if you've done any kind of apologetic ministry with Mormons, for example, they raise this issue all the time with open theists. I don't know how anybody can be actively involved in doing any kind of evangelism and apologetics and not have already had to deal with this issue repetitively. So I'm, I'm just like, here again is a situation where you're like, that seems awfully strange to me. It seems awfully weird to me. Um, but... Don't you think that that's a comment on that particular individual? Are you now going to associate people with that kind of an attitude? And it's a sort of, well, yes. Uh, People have read the Bible for many centuries, and they're well aware that Philippians 2 didn't appear yesterday. Okay. What does that have to do with Philippians 2? Once again, on the Credo podcast, Popular Baptist speaker, Philippians 2. What is this about? What does that have to do with someone who clearly has not done their biblical homework? Doesn't know what the original language terminology is. I mean, I Nakam came off the top of my head. I mean, that's just how often I've had to deal with this particular situation, this particular issue. So what does that have to do with Philippians 2? Well, you know, the church is... Okay, are you saying that there is an ecclesiastical interpretation of Philippians chapter 2? When was it given and who gave it? What council did it? That's what I'd like to know. What council gave it? It's one thing to say, well, there is there, there are general realities that have been accepted regarding the deity of Christ and things that... Okay. Fine. When when was there 
an infallible definition of Philippians chapter 2 provided? Who gave it? Because I've read a lot of interpretations of the Carmen Christi, and my general experience, especially reading in the early church, is that you will find gems of insight, but you're going to have to brush away a lot of the incredibly negative influence of origin. And so, you know, there's the ancient Christian commentary set. And, you know, uh, we bought that for me when it first came out in print, and I have it electronically on, on my computers, on my phone. And I often will uh, look at the commentary for a particular passage. And my general experience is that you will find places where writers throughout church history hit upon key issues, did so accurately, but very often up to the time of the Reformation, they would go off on tangents that have nothing directly to do with the text itself. I mean, Thomas is a real example of that kind of stuff. He does it all the time. And those are negative influences. Am I somehow bound by them? By the fact that there's been 1,500 years of that? Am I, am I bound in my reading of Philippians chapter 2 to that? These are all questions that everybody has to answer. And just throwing out vague statements and not being specific um, does not help anyone in, in any way. Thought about and commented on in the past. Um, so, yeah. yeah it's, I, uh, I think there's a couple of issues going on there, Carl. One is um, we, well, here at my institution, we love to say we're for the church. And I always tell students, you realize that doesn't mean merely your particular right. church right now in the 21st century. To be, if you really want to be for the church, then you need to be reading the Bible with the church. Yeah. <laughs> reading the Bible with the church. Okay. Once again, there is a um, understandable utilization of that kind of language. The idea of reinventing the wheel, the idea that the Spirit of God has not been active in history, um, is clearly in error. At the same time, on the other hand, you go, I've read the documents of Vatican II, and that's a Vatican II statement. That the scriptures are only to be read within the sacred tradition of the church. Remember, in Roman Catholicism, Sacred tradition is a capital S, capital T. Scripture is written tradition along with oral tradition, and you have the teaching of the magisterium of the church, and this is a bundle. This is a package. And so you are warned in the pages of Vatican II, the only way to read sacred scripture is within the church. So there's one side, and then the other side, it's you and your Bible out under the the trees and you will get to see things that no one has never seen before and again meaningful reformed hermeneutics will keep you from either one 
from either extreme. As long as we keep people from getting into the idea of, well, you know, the great tradition now becomes the hermeneutical lens that we're supposed to use and all the rest of that kind of, uh, that kind of stuff. Um, so once again, you have this, you know, this group being identified out there someplace, um, but what exactly they believe and where exactly they've stated it, nobody knows. Uh, I think sometimes we think we're just being biblical, but actually we sound more like enlightenment uh, individuals um, mm -hmm. as if we read the Bible by ourselves. Right. Reformers, that would have been so strange to them. Um, they are reading the Bible with the church Catholic, the church universal, so that as they, yes, they are appealing to the Bible as their final court of appeal because it alone is inspired by God. But Heiko Oberman makes this great point where he says they are then secondarily looking to tradition as something that's instrumental so that they have this living, active conversation with the tradition to understand the text in the right and proper way so that they don't, you know, uh, go off the rails. Yeah. Um, so, so what do you do when you encounter a noble early church writer who simply completely bombs a text? Or can you even know? What's the standard? Um, we, could, we could come up with all sorts of texts, different and challenging texts. Um, the use of the term all in Colossians chapter 1, after the creative creation portion, where Christ is said to be the creator of all things visible and invisible, principalities, smiles, dominions, authorities, all things created by him, before him, he is before all things, all him, all him co exist, they, they hold together. But then after that, you have redemption language. And I, could, I imagine we could probably find 20 different interpretations of what that's supposed to mean by some of the, what we would consider to be the best, most uh, insightful, widely read, early church fathers in the first 600 years. What do you do then? What's your standard? Um, do we not start with grammatical historical interpretation and then analyze what someone has said and recognize that every single person in history is influenced by the controversies of those days? Augustine's influenced by key controversies, the Donatist controversy, the Pelagian controversy. Um, great, the Gregories, Basil, they have their own spins and twists because of what's going on in, in their particular context. Chrysostom in his own, you know, it's got all sorts of political stuff going on. Um, do, do we take any of that into consideration? Uh, these are important questions. And a lot of us on this side think about them. Uh, if you listen to the other side, you would think that we've never even thought about it, um, but but we actually um, have. You know, Matthew, and, and you're well aware of this, you and some of the others who've really been helping um, both Baptists and um, Presbyterians and, and Reformed and Reformed Anglican folks to think through and appreciate this project of theological retrieval. You guys have also been attacked 
in places like social media. Um, I've seen your name thrown out there and uh, I, I know you had have no idea the source of it. Um, but, uh, you know, as, as leading people to Rome, this whole project is going to lead people um, uh, to, 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 to Rome. And now again, it's sort of hard um, not to conclude that that's directly in reference to myself. I cannot help but think that a memo went out and somebody didn't listen carefully, didn't listen closely, didn't want to listen carefully or closely. And hence, you just have this basic, if you talk about this stuff, everyone's going to go to Rome. And anyone who's listened to what I know knows that's desperately dishonest. Desperately dishonest. I, I just do not understand how pastors, reformed men, can miss the issue. Maybe, again, maybe they don't talk to the people that are converting. Maybe they didn't talk to the young man who was Michael Barrett's student that became Roman Catholic just a few weeks ago. And maybe they haven't listened to his testimony and the view of patristics and everything that went with it. Maybe they, maybe they, they just stay out of that stuff. Maybe I, I don't know. But if you're serious about this stuff, then you have to know, you just have to know what I'm actually talking about in regards to ultimate authorities, sola scriptura, relationship to tradition, um, the ultimacy of the apostolic message over against a development of an apostolic tradition. You have to. You have to recognize this. So this next section is important. I, I'm looking at the time here. And I have not received any um, material from Rich. I, I assume that he is uh, probably fallen asleep, um, and he, you know he may he may have to um, leave. I know he has something to do this afternoon, um, but uh, says we have an excellent stream. Um, I'm going to try to press through here. I mean, it's uh, I'm actually going to have to turn the uh, the AC down a little bit because the the sun's getting over to a spot where it's uh, uh, warming me up a little bit in here. Um, but uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and press through. This could be a long one, and it may be the longest program we ended up doing end up doing in the studio up to this particular uh, point in time. Uh, but um, there we go. Let's, just a little bit of air movement itself will, uh, will, will make, make all the difference in the world if I can get the Bluetooth to actually uh, accept the commands. <laughs> and, ah, 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 now I can go. <laughs> you know, as long as you're not sweating yourself to death, you can, uh, you can, you can make it through. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll press on here. Okay, this next section from Matthew Barrett, I think is very important. It'll be, I want to invite everybody to listen carefully to what he's saying. Notice the difference to how, how we do this. We're not do, I'm not doing something about nameless, faceless people. People, I'm letting them speak for themselves. I'm giving their names, and, and, I'm, letting, and I'm letting you hear them. And I'm saying, to, listen to what they're saying. Think this through. Uh, it's the only way to actually accomplish anything uh, in, in the long run. So listen to what he says here, because he's going to say, no, this isn't, this doesn't lead anybody to Rome. Listen to the why, and listen for this. Fundamentally, and again, I have a lot more experience in this particular area than he does. Fundamentally, you will not hear him give the answer 
that I give on this topic. And the question that should be helpful to all of us is why and what is the difference? So listen, listen to this section. You know, my, my sense of this is actually ju- just the opposite because actually evangelicals have already been fleeing to Rome. And I think a big reason for that is precisely because the... Okay, I, actually, this is Todd Pruitt. I'm sorry. The untethered from history evangelicalism that they've been raised in did not give them a sense of connectedness, reverence. I mean, you, you have young people going... You know, I'm a part of a church that, what, is 100 years old, you know, and I've got this friend of mine who's Eastern Orthodox, and they're, or Roman Catholic, and they're in a church that's 2,000 years old. And so you have these, these evangelicals who, and Carl and I have talked about this on the program before, who, who have flooded into Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism, not because somebody, not because they heard, um, you know, classical theism, those undomesticated doctrines of God's preached, but because they didn't. Yeah. Um, not not because they had good instruction that showed them that we are we are proper inheritors of yeah. the first five centuries, but because they never even heard anything from the first yeah. five centuries mentioned. Okay, that was Todd Pruitt, not Matthew Barrett. Apologies, uh, but it's still very important, very very important. Um, is that why people convert? Well, there is no question that there is a. Um, Longing for the ancient church standing in the mists of time. And, you know, the 2,000 year thing, yeah, that's what both the Orthodox and Roman Catholics claim. It's laughably untrue. The Orthodox are giving us the traditional worship and beliefs primarily of the 6th and 7th centuries. There's been some modification of that. I mean, I, I, I don't know that. The people at that time period would have had the kind of developed doctrine of Energaia that you have within Eastern Orthodoxy today or, or, or stuff like that. But you're still talking about um, centuries. Anyways, sorry about that. Policy. So the Roman Catholics, they make their claim to be 2,000 years old. We know there's been so much development. Uh, you know, they, They've defined as dogma, uh, things that no one in the, fir- in the early church had any belief whatsoever. Uh, in regarding bodily assumption and immaculate conception and all that kind of stuff. So we know all that kind of stuff isn't true. But what is the, the fundamental issue in why people convert? It's not because they weren't given some kind of classical theology with quotes from the first five centuries of the church. That's not why. That's not why. The reason they convert is because they lose confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture to communicate the gospel and how we're to worship God without an external traditional source. That's why they convert. That's why they convert. Have you have, have any of you guys read the Surprise by Truth books or is that beneath your classical theology? Sorry, but... I've been involved with this. I've seen the damage done. And so to see people missing it while maybe, probably, taking shots from my direction at the same time. um, Yeah, okay. Whatever you guys say. 
to, you know, if you were to ask, oh, what tips them over? <laughs> What's the straw that breaks the camel's back? It's when they then see certain radicals today that look a lot like radicals in the 16th century. Right. That then verify their worst nightmares, their yeah. worst fears that, oh, maybe Protestantism exactly. actually doesn't have roots. Maybe process it's not inherently connected in spirit to the church universal. And then they see those terrible caricatures. But it won't be nearly as good <laughs> because I played what was being stated about why these people are converting. And here, reform men are missing the key issue. These people are not converting because they didn't get sermons based upon the patristic interpretation of passages from the first five centuries. That's not why they convert. They convert because they lose commitment to the sufficiency of Scripture and are convinced that Scripture needs something, an authority outside to interpret it. And so here you have reformed men. Reformed men. And instead of giving a meaningful answer, are basically saying, well, actually, you know, we've, we've got this stuff from the first five centuries, and anyone who's read it knows that there's all sorts of different streams and perspectives and understandings expressed in this material, and we just need to be preaching that more. They need more classical theology. That's not why any person I've ever met that converted ever converted. Not, not for a second. Not for a second. Have any of these guys even read the Surprise by Truth series? Doesn't seem to me that they did. Doesn't seem to me that they did. Um, so, very troubling. One more quote. Hopefully, I'll get this one right. I've gotten all the rest of them, but that was the first time that everything blew up. Need to find a different way of me being able to hear stuff. Um, because that's going to that's gonna happen again in the future. Uh, I mean, I don't necessarily blame them for feeling a bit nauseated. Yeah, absolutely. And then they, they just give up at that point. Yeah. And so, what I always say to them is... Uh, don't pay attention to the caricatures. Those are, are sloppy misrepresentations of Protestantism. Protestantism. Uh, they are radicalizations of otherwise good principles. Yeah. Uh, instead, go back to actually history itself and look look at what, say, the Reformed scholastics, for example. Look at how they went about their theology. Not only was it incredibly robust, um, but it was inherently... Uh, making the claim that they were, say, Augustinian, or in some cases they were even uh, refining and transforming Thomism for the sake of arguing against the Arminians and Sassinians. Right, I mean, yeah. there's just countless examples of this. So there you go. There's there's the reasoning. Oh, they, they were using Thomas and uh, had to get Thomas, had to get Thomas in there. Nothing about grounding people in the apostolic revelation of scripture it's not there it's not there the man who wrote the book in 2016 doesn't exist anymore it's like bruce jenner caitlin jenner boom gone astonishing astonishing troubling deeply deeply troubling um so um there you go all right now i have to change everything here uh pull a few things off of this uh over here it's interesting, um, Matthew Barrett 
posted a quote very citing J.V. Fesco. Now, Fesco is to the Presbyterians what Barrett is for the Baptists, okay? So Fesco is one of the people promoting the Thomistic Renaissance and, and all that kind of fun stuff. And here's the quote. This is on, uh, is that Twitter? Twitter or Facebook, when people quote stuff, it's hard, hard to tell which one it is. Matthew Barrett said, We must not misunderstand or abuse post-tenebrous lux. After darkness light, says J.V. Fesco, by tapping the sources, Luther, Calvin, Aquinas, etc., we will discover that Protestants have continuity with the ancient church. If you notice that all of the phrases are getting a new coating of paint, it wasn't really tenebrous. It wasn't really darkness. And it wasn't really light. It was, uh, we, uh, we, we, cleaned, we cleaned the lens. You know how, how your, your, your headlights can get that icky stuff on it and it, 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 they're not as bright and sharp as it. And you, you, you buy that stuff from Acme, Acme Headlight Cleaner. 47,000 different types of, on, on uh, Amazon. And, uh, and you, you get all that stuff off and so you can see clearly again. That's what, it's renewal. Reformation is renewal, see. It's not really post-tenebrous lux. And it's not Semper Reformanda. That was Bart. I mean, that was that was just so you can throw all the, the, the confessions out. It wasn't the church always needing to be reformed. Really? Yeah, all that 20th century stuff. You're all just a bunch of idiots back then. And, and, and some of you have gotten smart enough to realize that you were idiots back then, but White, he just wants to remain an idiot. That's what we're getting. There was real meaning to post-tenebrous locks. There was a real meaning to the darkness that led to indulgences, the darkness that led to the papacy, the darkness that led to the illiteracy of the, of the, of the people, of the word of God. There was darkness. Beware of people who will tell you, yeah, it really wasn't that dark. They may be moving you back into the dark. That might be a real possibility. Might be a real possibility. Okay, now, totally, totally, completely, 1,000% shifting gears. <laughs> um, and I hope this, I hope this, uh, this works for us here. Um, well, yeah, that, that should work. Unless I have to go over to um, something else. I don't think I'm going to be playing any sound out of this, so I don't need to have that on. So let's see what this looks like. Um, yeah. All right. Dale Tuggy's challenge, the unbiblical nature of Unitarianism demonstrated. So totally shifting gears. I've been sitting here for quite some time, but I'm still energetic. Um, and we will, I, I think it would be wise if we, cause like I said, we're gonna have to edit that section out. Just sorry. I, that's just, that's going to be necessary. I, if I have to do it, I'll do it. Um, but uh, probably need to put a, a link into the description to this section because we're an hour and a half in already, and uh, we want people to be able to come to this. I, I got I got so many I got so many positive uh, comments after the last program when we spent time going into uh, Ignatius and into various biblical passages and things like that. Uh, got a lot of real positive uh, commentary 
from folks, and that's why I took the time uh, to put the, this together, where we have uh, what happened was um, Dale Tuggy, amongst various and sundry other attacks uh, on uh, on Twitter and condescending comments, things like that, uh, basically said I shouldn't be taken seriously until I can identify which of these um, statements are, are untrue. And there was a link given to an article, and here's here's where the argument, here's where the challenge is laid out, okay? So this is, this is what I would identify as sophistry, full-on sophistry. Um, but let's take a look at it. Uh, here's, here's the argument. Number one, God and Jesus differ. Number two, things that differ are two, i.e. are not numerically identical. Three, therefore God and Jesus are two, not numerically identical. For any X and Y, X and Y are the same God only if X and Y are not two, i.e. are numerically identical. Therefore God and Jesus are not the same God. Number six, there is only one God. Number seven, therefore either God is not a God or Jesus is not a God. Number eight, therefore Jesus is not a God. So here is your argumentation from uh, Dale Tuggy. Ta-da! This might actually work. All right, so let's let's walk through this. Uh, number one, God and Jesus differ. Well, immediately, please recognize that the statement assumes the final goal of this argument, the final goal of Unitarianism, by confusing terms. And you will find this with Tuggy all the time. Um, Unitarians demand that God equals the Father alone, only, always. So, if you want to be biblically accurate, if you wanted to be honest with the New Testament, what you would say is the Father and the Son are distinguished from one another. That would be a true statement. But by saying God and Jesus differ, you are importing your conclusions into your argument to begin with. You're not deriving them from the New Testament. And that's what that's what the real problem with, with philosophers who pretend to do theology is. Is in philosophy, you can spin your argument depending upon the definitional range, semantic range of the propositions that you give. If they couldn't do that, they wouldn't have anything to be doing all day long. <laughs> they have nothing to be publishing and everything else. So, since... But but if, if you're being serious with the Bible, if, um, if, if Scripture is your, your authority, then you're going to start with the definitions provided here and not some type of philosophical stuff that you come up with from another another direction. And by the way, um, if you're if you're wondering, yes, we we do we do know what Dr. Tuggy is talking about, uh, and we'll utilize those sources um, as our analysis goes on. So, since the Trinity differentiates between Father, Son, and Spirit, this is a given. But the distinction is in person, not in being, and that will not even appear in this argument. That will not even appear in the argument, which is what causes the, the problem. So, 
consider this statement, the Father and the Lord differ. Since kurios is normally used of the Son in the New Testament and is the Septuagint rendering of Yahweh, the very covenant name of God, would this statement be relevant and lead to a denial that the Father is Yahweh or God in the fullest sense? Such would be absurd biblically, of course, but that's the point. Sophistry like this is too simplistic to deal with the breadth and depth of biblical revelation. So always be careful when you run into folks that are using this kind of stuff. Let's press forward. Um, there we go. Number two. Things which differ are two, i.e. are not numerically identical. Well, insofar as this is stated about the Father and the Son as divine persons, of course, they are not numerically identical as persons, but this is not a denial that the infinite, unlimited being of God cannot be said to be shared fully by the Father and the Son. So again, it doesn't allow for the distinction that is forced upon us by the biblical revelation of one God and then the identification of three persons who are distinguished from one another as that one God. That's why Unitarians have to deny that Jesus identified as Yahweh in the same way as the Father, um, deny the, the, the text on the deity of Christ, and they come up with various ways of doing so, but they're inconsistent in how they do so. Um, and then they fall back on argumentation like this to get around that. Number three, therefore God and Jesus are two, not numerically identical. And so the correction to this would be, correction, the Father and Son are two persons. Basic Trinitarian assertion, basic biblical revelation, contra modalism and oneness. So modalism and oneness uh, do uh, experience confusion at this uh, particular point. So, for any X and Y, X and Y are the same God only if X and Y are not two, i.e. are numerically identical. This is, again, basic confusion categories. This is an assertion the being of God cannot be shared by two distinct persons. Since the argument isn't allowing that uh, category, then it is smuggling in an assertion illegitimately. No foundation is given for this assertion, nor does this follow from what came before, since what came before does not differentiate between being and person. Hence, this is a false assertion that the Father cannot be identified as Yahweh when the Son is identified as Yahweh as well. That's the biblical reality. And again, if sophistry is not our foundation, but biblical revelation is, then we clearly recognize this the error of this kind of thinking, since both the Father and the Son are identified as Yahweh in the New Testament. This is contradicted by clear and compelling biblical evidence and hence is a false assertion. Likewise, there is confusion with the language same God since this seems to assume a Unitarian definition of God as well. Again, no distinction between being in person being uh, allowed uh, in, that, in that context. Number five, therefore God and Jesus are not the same God. No, the Father and the Son are not the same person. But the Father and Son are both identified as Yahweh in Scripture, and none of the confusion of categories and hidden Unitarian assumptions provided to this point can change that reality. Number six, there is only one God. Uh, this, uh, of course, uh, should have been the very first statement 
For the Trinity is based upon the biblical reality that, one, there is only one being of God, Yahweh. Number two, there are three distinct persons revealed in Scripture, Father, Son, and Spirit. And three, these three persons are identified as Yahweh and are taught to be equal in power, glory, worship, etc. Basic Trinitarian teaching. Uh, Number seven, therefore, either God is not a God or Jesus is not a God. The argument has, of course, already fallen apart, but it is useful to see the foolishness of sophistry when it is applied to scriptural revelation. Since there is only one God, then it follows that since the Father is identified as Yahweh, the Son is identified as Yahweh, and the Spirit is the Spirit of Yahweh, that each are fully divine, yet distinguishable, and the doctrine of the Trinity is true. Again, if biblical revelation was the source of terminology and argumentation, rather than something that you just try to get around. Um, God is a God. Uh, That's sort of given. The Father is divine. The Son is divine. The Spirit is divine. The argument failing to necessarily distinguish between being in person and ignoring biblical revelation has collapsed into sophistic childishness. Finally, therefore, Jesus is not a God. It is actually embarrassing that so-called philosophers could produce this kind of confusion and such rank error in argumentation, one would think that there would be at least some recognition of the definitional control of biblical revelation and categories, and hence some recognition that Scripture plainly speaks in categories are larger, broader, and deeper than this foolish argument. But, again, if your ultimate authority uh, is, in fact, um, sophistic argumentation, uh, then you're going to be you're going to be very impressed by this kind of thing. Uh, you shouldn't be, but it should be something that most of us are able to provide a response to. You need to be able to recognize the confusion of categories, uh, the things that are going on uh, in the context uh, of of that. So one other last thing to get to, um, and yeah, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be able to keep it from becoming. Um, an entire <laughs> two hours. I'm, I'm going to do my best uh, to get to get through this. But and, and again, this was something that people really enjoyed in the last program. So I wanted to, do, to try to do this. I had a conversation with a Unitarian. Uh, Tuggy's people are all over the place, and they're they're seeing he's being tagged, and so they're they're jumping in. And. I forget exactly how it started, but we started having a conversation about Jesus being identified as Yahweh. And one of the texts that I cited was the text in John 12, 41. And he immediately adopted the Greg Stafford form of argumentation. Greg Stafford is a Unitarian, a former Jehovah's Witness, and I don't know what he's up to these days, to be honest with you. A few years after he and I debated, he started a group called Witnesses of Yah once the witnesses got rid of him. I don't know if he's still doing that or anything. I, I really I really have no earthly idea. Um, but he's a sharp guy. And so um, he, and I've told the story before, I read his attempted response to the identification of Jesus as Yahweh that's found in John 12, 41 in comparison with Isaiah 6. And it was his attempt to get around that 
that caused me to do the reading that allowed me to see where the error was. And so I want to uh, walk you through that in the last minutes we have on the program here. And uh, I really believe that this is something, and, and I've had many Christians over the years come up to me and say, you know, I listened to your presentation about John 12, 41, as well as the Psalm 102, 25, 27, Hebrews 1, 10 through 12 identification. Um, people have come up to me, and I, I shared that with Jehovah's Witnesses. They had never seen it before. I did what you said to do and give them time to think about it. I didn't force them to come up with a response to it immediately. And man, it was really, really effective. And so I really think this is something that all believers should be prepared to do, uh, whether it's with Jehovah's Witnesses, just plain old Unitarians, um, Muslims. This is valuable all along, all along the route. Okay, So in John chapter 12, you have the end of Jesus' public ministry. John chapters 13, 14, and 15 are Jesus' personal ministry to the disciples, establishment of the Last Supper, betrayal, etc., etc. John 17, high priestly prayer. John 18, you go into the arrest and all the rest of that stuff after that. And so there is a section where John fundamentally wraps up the public ministry by, by saying, but though he had done so many signs, and I guess I can go ahead and... Uh, yeah, but though he had done so many signs, let me uh, uh, see it up on the screen. Ding, ding, and maybe just one ding there, okay? It gives you a little more, a little bit easier to see on the screen. But though he had done so many signs before them, they still were not believing in him, so that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and return and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke about him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue for they love the glory of men rather than the glory of God. So this is a, a tough section. I mean, you've got judgment and you've got uh, even though, you know, it says right th right here, verse 37, for though he had done so many signs before them, yet they still were not believing in him. So it's about unbelief. It's about the reasons for it. But here's the key. There are two texts that are cited here. Uh, the first comes from Isaiah 53, 1. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so here, here's, you know, Lord, who's, who's believed us? He's talking about unbelief. They were not believing in him. So the word of Isaiah, the prophet might fulfilled. Lord, who has believed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, so now we have another citation on actually an, another aspect of this issue. And that is the, the reason they could not was because there was a judgment coming upon them. And the quotation is not from Isaiah 53, but from Isaiah 6, Isaiah's temple vision when he is made a prophet. 
He is, establishes a prophet. He has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes, understand with their heart, and return, and I heal them. And then you have John 12, 41, this statement. These things Isaiah said, because he saw his glory and he spoke about him. Okay, here's the Greek. Tauta ipen Isaiah's hati aiden tain doxon autu, kai alale son peri autu. These things Isaiah said because Aidentain Doxon Autu. He saw his glory and Elalesan Peri Autu. He spoke concerning him. But now please notice in the Greek. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers, the Archontone, were believing. Notice it's Aris, which in John is important. Ice Autan, in him. Okay, so we have Autu, Autu, Autan. If you're not familiar with Greek, those are just simply different um, uh, cases. Uh, they're the same word. It's the same him. Why is that important? Because these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke about him. These things Isaiah said. Well, the immediate preceding context is the citation from the Greek Septuagint of Isaiah chapter 6. And in Isaiah 6, who does Isaiah see? I saw the Lord lofty and lifted up, sitting upon the throne. The train of his robes filling the temple. You've got the, the cherubim and the seraphim, the angels worshiping. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. It's the temple vision. And so the natural reading would be that Isaiah sees Yahweh. Now, in Isaiah 6, 1, it's Adonai. But then when he's addressed, it's Yahweh. Yahweh is upon his throne. It's being worshipped by the angelic host. And then he commissions Isaiah and then tells, you know, how long, O Lord? And then he tells them, I'm going to harden their hearts and close their ears and blind their eyes. And it's a judgment oracle. So the natural reading would be that when it says these things, tauta ipen, the immediate, you've just finished an entire quotation from the Greek Septuagint. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke about him. And we know I saw the Lord. There it is. Well, Greg Stafford uh, came up with another way of, with a way around this. He said, well, but you see there's a Preceding, and the guy in Twitter did the same thing. There's a preceding um, section from Isaiah 53, and we can say that Isaiah 53, I mean, a suffering servant, it's, it's a fantastic passage, revealed the glory of the Messiah, and that's what John 12 41 is about. Well, there's no question that Isaiah 53 reveals the glorious work of the Messiah, but it's by his rejection of his people. Nowhere in Isaiah 53 does it say that anyone saw glory. It's just not there. So you have to read into it, well, but what he did, his his self-giving is glorious, and people are going to see it, and so that's the seeing of the glory. That's a super stretch. That's a That's a massive stretch. You're trying to get around something. 
But it was when I started looking at the underlying text, that's when I discovered something. Again, those of you who've listened to my um, uh, my, my sermon at uh, G3, you've already you already knew how to answer this. <laughs> at least you better know how to answer it. Oh, come on. I, accordance needs a better... Um, all right. I-S-A. Could you just guess it? Thank you. All right. Uh, accordance needs a better uh, verse entry system. It really, really does. That's the only thing about the program that drives me just a little bit on the buggy side. Okay, here's Isaiah 6.1, and... You already know where this is where this is going, but for those that are not, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I'm going to get myself out of here because you're going to need to see all of this. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe was filling the temple. Now, that's what you have in the Greek Septuagint. So the temple, uh, Hekal, this is the Greek Septuagint over here. Ha-oikos is the the uh, the house, and so you have the train of his robe. But if you're looking at the Greek Septuagint, which of course was the Bible of the early church, which of course anyone reading John, if they looked up John's reference to Isaiah six, what would they see? There's a textual variant. Instead of the train of his robe is filling the temple, you have Kai play race ha oikos taste doxes autu glory and the house was full of his glory. So here you have Idon, I saw Tonkurion, and when he's described when he describes what he's seeing, the house, the temple is being filled or is full of what? His glory, which you go back to John 12, 41, and what do you have? Iden tain doxon autu. He saw his glory. Anybody at all reading the Greek Septuagint and reading what John said would go, there it is. That's what he's talking about. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. And he spoke about him. It's exactly what the Greek Septuagint says at, at Isaiah 6.1. And who's the one who speaks in Isaiah 6? It's Yahweh. He's the one on the throne. He's the one whose glory Isaiah saw. So if you ask Isaiah, whose glory did you see? I saw Yahweh's glory. If you ask John, whose glory did, did Isaiah see? John's answer is, Jesus and Unitarians will stand on their heads, they'll spin around but they can't get away from what the text actually says Jesus identified as Yahweh in John 12 41 if you will allow the text to speak for itself but a lot of people are not willing to do that that is of course a problem Okay, we almost went two full hours. We almost went two full hours. And if I need to do the editing, I can try to do it on my end and uh, and go from there. 
Uh, so it'll actually be a little bit less. It will lose about two minutes, but came pretty close to a mega edition of the dividing line from the mobile studio. And uh, other than that one little oops, everything else I think went really, really well. And so uh, really invested a lot of time in putting this together for you because I really felt that these issues are some of the most important issues that we can touch on. And isn't it weird? I don't, I don't know how my Thomistic brothers would respond to the Dale Tuggies of the world, but I don't think they'd respond the same way that we do. And my argument is, go to the text. Christ's sheep need to hear his voice, not mediated by some kind of developed tradition, but as given by the Spirit of God. That's... Um, that's that, that that's that's the important part. That's the important part. Okay, um, Rich is sending me stuff that I have no idea what it means, so we'll have to talk about that <laughs> later on. But we're done with the program. We will be back again, Lord willing, on Thursday with more of this kind of stuff. Thank you very much for watching today and for putting up with uh, my uh, making mistakes and things like that. Bink. And seeing me do stuff like that. <laughs> Bring up the music. Let's get out of here. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time. God bless. <laughs>